Welcome to the Chasing Presence podcast, co-hosted by Santi and Mike. This is a space where we share our insights for how to live a more spiritually aligned life. Join us on our journey to expand consciousness, live with purpose, and awaken to our true nature. Welcome, everyone, to the Chasing Presence podcast. Today, we are joined by Baron Hansen, co-founder of Convicts Creative Studio, Vedic meditation initiator, and a passionate storyteller through film, originally seeking from the fatigue and stress of New York City life, he found solace in meditation. With a background as a travel agent, event organizer, and filmmaker, Barron's focus now lies in using meditation to affect change in communities. His ambitious project, Be Here Nara, Community Happiness, aims to teach meditation to 1% of his hometown. He's also a co-founder of a meditation initiative aimed at the music industry called the Baseline Happiness Project, aimed at improving mental health. Join Barron in his mission to combine music, storytelling, and meditation for a brighter future. Barron, welcome to the show. What an intro. Thanks, Mike. Hi, Santi. Nice to meet you. I think to start off, we just want to get some background information about you and ask you about how you first embarked on your spiritual journey. I remember when we when we last chatted at this amazing group meditation dinner that you said it was through an psych, uh, through a psychedelic experience. So um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, correct. And um, that was great to meet you, Mike, under those conditions in a group meditation with our mutual friend, Blaze, who um, is a, a Vedic meditation teacher. And going up to Malibu and having a group meditation on a, on a Tuesday night was was really nice. Um, so yeah, my first kind of spiritual awakening was through a, a single LSD trip when I was about 20. And uh uh, I'd always been very interested in psychedelics and read a lot and done a re- lot of research before embarking on my own um, exploration. And um, for me, that was where the curtains kind of got pulled back and the fabric of reality was kind of revealed in all its glory and all its beauty. And it really set me on a path of wanting to understand consciousness and understand what's going on um, in the brain. And um that was probably uh, it's been a 15 year journey now uh, since that time and um it's led me to meditation it's led me to trying a bunch of other psychedelics uh exploring all the different corners of the brain uh and then you know finding that that bliss naturally through meditation has been the the progression so anyone who listens to this podcast knows that i'm a big um, advocate of, of psychedelics and plant medicines and it sounds like that was what kind of started things for you. And then you you got more into creating a daily habit of meditation to try to recreate some of those experiences. I'm curious if you've been able to ever achieve similar states through meditation um, that you've experienced on psychedelics. And if so, how long did it take to get to that point? And if you kind of just talk through any maybe similarities, differences, and kind of maybe compare and contrast the two. Yeah, definitely. I was actually listening to your podcast uh, last week and it was the fasting one and you were talking about achieving some of those um, blissful psychedelic states while fasting. Uh, And I've certainly had glimpses of those psychedelic states um, naturally. Um, But I would say the big difference is that it's a 
it's a gradual progression, right? And in meditation, we talk about this analogy of, of dying the cloth. And, and Mike, I'm sure Blaze would have um, talked to you about this uh, when you learned meditation with him. And it's this, this uh, analogy, right? So that in ancient times, the way that you would dye cloth is you would, you would dip a cloth into, say, like a beautiful saffron dye if you were trying to make like a yellow cloth. And then you would put it out in the sun. And the sun bears down upon the cloth and fades it almost back to, to white. Um, and you do this every single day. You dip the cloth, you put it out in the sun, it fades. And what happens over time, it's a very slow and gradual process, but eventually the cloth becomes color fast. The cloth becomes so saturated in dye that no amount of sun can fade it anymore. And so I would say like what psychedelics does, it's like, it's like all in. It's like you're, you've got this like huge release of these bliss chemicals, and you've got this like you know crazy experience that happens um, to your to your uh, physiology. Whereas meditation is like the cloth dyeing analogy. It's it's slow progression over time, and then what happens is these bliss states start to get normalized. And so I would say that if you were to have a peek inside my brain right now, it would be quite a psychedelic experience for an average person, but it's a state that I've cultivated over a long period of time, the last eight years of, of meditation, of dipping the cloth every day, every day, every day to kind of like normalize this, this psychedelic state um, in my everyday waking life. It's amazing. I, I aspire to be having that normalized psychedelic experience, but at the same time, I'm very okay with where I am on my journey. Actually, I, since I've been practicing meditation, which now it's been since January when Blaze taught me, uh, I recently, it's so it's been about five months, I recently noticed that in, uh, in a very anxious situation or in a situation that I would have been very anxious in the past, that I was able to manage it very well and I didn't get as worked up and I was way more aware of my thoughts and not letting it spiral into this like emotional rabbit hole. So it was, it's was it been about four to five months, but before that I was practicing meditation for about three to four years and I didn't really notice as many benefits because it wasn't transcendental Vedic meditation. Um, so, so I would say like it, it's taken me a while to notice the benefits and I'm curious what how long do you think it took you to start really noticing the benefits because i think what we're trying to do is we we really want people to stick with meditation and sometimes it can be hard to to stick with something if you don't see the results so how long do you think that it actually takes of you know in vedic meditation 20 minutes twice a day before you actually do start noticing benefits i know in one of your um, in one of your Instagram posts, you did say that like, as soon as you got taught, you noticed the benefits right away. But, um, I, I, how long did it take for you to really notice the benefits? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question and everybody, everybody differs. And I think one of the problems we face in the Western world is we're all looking for the quick fix, right? It's we're looking for the pill that's going to, we're going to take, that's going to make us better. We're going to look for that thing, the, the psychedelic trip that's going to like fix all of our problems. And unfortunately most things in life take time. <laughs> and, um, I certainly felt immediately after the first thing when I learned Vedic meditation that I was, it was the thing for me. And we've got to remember that there's there's different things for everyone, whether it be fasting, whether it be um, surfing, yoga, there, there's so many different modalities that, that can help people. When I did Vedic meditation, I was like, wow, this is the one for me. And I, I felt it almost immediately. But I think that 
the hardest thing with with Vedic meditation is that the changes happen very slowly, incremental over time, like the cloth. It's like you barely notice the the shades of the cloth changing. And but where I find it shows up the most is in points of contrast. So as you said, when you had that anxiety uh, experience, which you maybe would have reacted to in the past, then you were able to notice the difference. Or in situations where maybe I haven't been around friends for a while. It's kind of like when you're going to the gym, right? It's daily incremental growth. You don't really notice. And then you go and visit your grandma and she's like, wow, look how big your muscles are. And like, you don't, you haven't really noticed, but you haven't seen her in a while. So it's, it's, it's kind of that where we know that there's a benefit, but it's slow. And so if we're just keeping that in mind that, that it's, it's happening over time. The other thing I would say is that it's, it's exponential. It, it's slow at first. Um, but the, the, we have the dual benefit in meditation as you experienced is no longer are we adding more stress to our physiology. So we're slowly removing stress from the physiology every time we meditate, but when we're out there, we're not reacting to things. So we're not adding more stress. You know, one of the things they say is there's no such thing as stress. There's just stressful reactions to things. So now we've got this tool that helps us to not react and not add more stress to the physiology and we're removing stress. So over time, you know, we can remove all of the stress from our physiology. So for people listening who aren't particularly familiar with Vedic meditation, can you talk a little bit about what exactly it is, the premise, how one practices it, and maybe how it differs from other types of meditation? If you kind of just give a rundown of what Vedic meditation is and why you think it sort of clicks for you compared to maybe other, other forms of meditation or mindfulness. Yeah, good question. So vague meditation, very simply, it's a mantra-based practice. And the classification is it's considered an automatic self-transcendent technique. Um, so it's most similar to transcendental meditation. Um, and very simply, we practice 20 minutes twice a day is the recommended dosage. And um, each person, when they're initiated into Vedic meditation, is given a personalized, individualized mantra that's uh, resonant with their, um, with their body type. And that mantra is the tool or the technology for de-exciting the mind. So very simply, you think the mantra and what happens is that releases us from thoughts and then the mantras that we give are naturally self-refining. So they take you down, they move you down and they move you down to a place of no thought. So the purpose of Vedic meditation is not to think the mantra, it's actually to let go of the mantra. And when we let go of the mantra, we're left in this beautiful transcendent state where we're actually having no thought in this um explanation transcend means to go beyond so we're going beyond thought so we go beyond thought and when we land in this place it's very blissful and charming for the physiology and so we have it we're having this rebalancing of our chemicals when we get to this state our blood cortisol level drops our dopamine oxytocin and serotonin goes up so we're having this beautiful chemical rebalancing um, and we come out of it feeling really good and and that's the pretty simple explanation I can go into the science for hours, but that's the top line. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love this practice. It's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that I never thought that meditation was supposed to be, um, allowing for thought. I mean, the whole premise is that there's nothing wrong with that because what you resist per persists. So it's like the, the mantra is directly aiding the thing that is 
generally kind of it kind of contradicts what meditation really is which is why i think it has worked so well for me because if you think about it the way that i mean the way i learned meditation is just like sit down observe your thoughts and try not to think negative thoughts whereas the second that i lean into it and i just allow myself to just think the thought if i if i hear the thought and then i'm just like you know what no i'm just gonna keep thinking it and then i kind of like force myself to think it and then the mantra just comes just comes and it's 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 this crazy process that I didn't I never thought exists, but it's it's so beautiful and you know it, it's it has me very interested in Vedic meditation and but my question for you now is so how was the process of becoming a Vedic meditation teacher? From what I've heard, it's a very arduous process, but I'm very intrigued and yeah, how how was that experience for you? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I've always had the charm to be a teacher. Uh, my mom's a school teacher. My uncle and aunties are school teachers. And so after practicing this for about four or five years, I was like, wow, this, this could be something that I would love to do. Maybe as a side hustle, I'd love to be able to you know, continue my filmmaking um, career and business and then kind of teach meditation on the side. And so I started the, the prerequisites. And um, so for the specific teacher training that I did, um, there was 12 weekend courses that I had to do um, and they were all about 15 hours each or something like that um, and that was just over the course of two years and that's just the prerequisites and then um, you will you apply to for the teacher training um, and it's actually it's actually quite hard to get in there's there's a lot of people who apply and they are um, a very um, it's it's a they set a very high bar they really want the kind of the, the gold standard of of people who are ready to become teachers and so i applied in 2019 and got knocked back uh for the the training which was a bit of a blow to my ego but also i had to i had i still had i still had work to do uh and then so i reapplied in 2021 and i went and completed the the teacher training which is a three-month uh, kind of um, intensive training uh, in it's usually always in India um, but the, the because of COVID we ended up doing ours in Arizona where our teacher was residing uh, and I think in total we all up the course by the time I became a teacher by the time I learned the mantras and and um, got given the keys was about 3,000 hours of training um, so it's, it's a really intensive training it's not a it's not something you can just go and learn on a weekend and it means that the the caliber of teachers and Mike you would have met a couple of them um, at our dinner the other night um, is really high and the the whole idea is that when we're out there we're teaching from a state of consciousness that we're able to transfer to our students um, not only by inspiring our, our through our actions um, but being at a, a level of knowledge that is is quite high and um, is able to yeah in, inspire inspire people to to pick up the practice so with these 3000 hours is that primarily 3000 hours of actual meditation or is there a curriculum that involves some meditation and maybe some other forms of structure what does that what does that program look like for those for those hours that you put in yeah, it, it's a lot of it is meditation, um, but there's a lot of knowledge as well. The the Vedas and um, the the the, so the Vedas are from India. Um, they're ancient books of Indian text. Um, there's thousands and thousands years years of accumulated knowledge. So there is a lot of knowledge to understand. But 
One thing that I learned on the course, uh, there's a saying, if you've got six hours to cut down a tree, spend the first five sharpening your axe. And so a lot of what the course was about was about sharpening our axe. And a lot of that was through stress release, through deep meditation. So there was a lot of deep meditation, sharpening our axe, bringing our level of consciousness to a state where we were primed and ready to then ingest the knowledge, take it on, and then be able to share that back out with our students. So what is what is some of some pieces of uh, of wisdom you can provide here on this podcast? I'd like to hear maybe just one or two like things that maybe are I don't know profound or inspiring that maybe you learned through this program um, as part of sort of the 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 study part of it, not just the meditation. Well, um, give me a topic. What's what what's some uh, afflictions that are uh, bothering you at the moment? Um, something that has been coming up for me a lot lately has been judgment. So I struggle with having negative judgments towards other people, um, who I don't even really know very well. Um, and it comes from this place, which seems to me to be from a wounded place based on my own uh, traumas from my past that I'm having a hard time overcoming and, uh, surrendering. Mm. Yeah. See, the thing about Vedic philosophy is, it's not a religion. It's not a, um, we don't tell people how to behave. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I really like uh, about um, Vedic philosophy is we have, there, there's actually no judgment. Um, rather, what there is, is there's reports on people's state of consciousness. And so with this, what happens, we say, and Mike, you might have heard Blaze talk about this, but we don't say no, we say no, K-N-O-W. And that we don't denounce any behavior. We don't tell someone that what they're doing is wrong. We just say someone's doing research. And I really love that because it comes with a lot more compassion. And so, you know, when you, when someone maybe wrongs you or someone does something to you that, um, you know, you don't particularly like, and a lot of people fall into this trap where they're like, ah, you know, if that was me, I wouldn't have done that. But it's like, no, if that was you, you would have done exactly that. It's just a report on where that person is right now. And with Vedic philosophy, we like to take a broad approach when we look at things. We like to look at things in the macro. And there's a belief within Vedic philosophy that uh, we have many lives, that we live many iterations. And each time we enter a body, we go through a new journey. And that journey is to learn a lesson. And so when we extrapolate that and have a bigger view, you can kind of have a lot of compassion for people because maybe in this life they're, they're, going, they're in this body to learn a particular lesson. And so all we say is that whenever people, you know, any behavior is just a report on someone's state of consciousness. And for me personally, applying that to my own life has helped me a lot. You know, if someone does something really horrible, it's like, that's just where they're at right now. And it's probably a, a product of all of the things that they've experienced up to that point, all the trauma, all the trauma that they've collected, all of the, the things that have led them to that point where they've then done that thing that you think is, is bad, but in reality, it's, it's, that's where they're at. And so for me, that's, I guess, like, it's a tiny, that's a tiny snippet of, of Vedic philosophy, how it relates to judgment. But um, I really like that one of the ways we're taught to teach is to to take the macro, but also take the micro. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I also suffer from judgment a little bit. I am much more able to catch whenever I do make a judgment now, which I'm very grateful for. It mainly happens in the gym, actually. If 
if I don't, I don't know why, but it really happens in the gym and it's a great test of awareness, which is why I love going to the gym. Um, and ever since I've been able to practice Vedic meditation, it's been so much easier to catch myself when that happens and to be compassionate towards myself because I was once at that point, you know, just like everyone is on a certain point of their journey and that's just like where they are. There's no point to judge them for it. We still get caught in those mindsets though. And all we, all we do is just continue to meditate, continue the practice, continue trying to strengthen, strengthen our awareness. And then eventually it's all going to dissipate, but then it's going to come back. But the point is you're able to manage when the things do come back because you're, you have a state of consciousness that has been raised. And that's another question I wanted to ask you is, do you, when, when you do experience negative emotions, what is the experience like in your head? Like for me, I experience negative emotions. I might get caught in like five minutes of like overthinking and then I'll catch myself and then maybe I'll meditate and then maybe it'll happen again and then I'll come back. So, but what does that process look like for you in your brain? Yeah. You know, we say that just because we're meditators, we're not devoid of feeling, right? We're not, um, we still feel things. If, you know, a family member passes away or if, if something happens, we're still able to to feel. Um, but I think the difference is as a meditator is we can still get stressed. We just don't stay stressed. You know, we have, we, we still kind of like things come in, uh, but we're able to process them very quickly. And and it comes with this, this, this state of physiology. Um, if you think about like someone when they're in a fight or flight state, right? their body is is say their body's looking for tigers their body's looking for something that's going to kill them it's our you know it's from our reptilian part of our brain and so when we're in a state of flight or flight we're looking for negatives we're scanning for things that are going to kill us because we're running away from tiger so as we kind of like remove that fight or flight state and have more kind of bliss chemicals in our chemistry we're able to stop and smell the roses we're able to stop and kind of see the positives uh, as opposed to looking for what's going to kill us and so that little like shift that little body uh, change in body chemistry allows us to have a much more positive disposition so I'm often able when negative things happen is I'm able to see the silver lining I'm able to very quickly just see like oh, this was a learning opportunity or that needed to happen for something else to to grow. You know, the destruction operator had to come through so that creation could happen. And so just always trying to like move towards the the, the positive um, and that comes from having that state of physiology where you're actually able to highlight the positive as a, opposed to dwell on the negative. Awesome. Would you like to potentially describe an experience that was especially difficult for you, how you pushed through it, how it helped your mindset and um, just how it led to you learning certain things that made you the person that you are today. Yeah. I was actually talking about this with a friend yesterday. Uh, we were talking about relationships and I've recently moved out of a um, you know longer term relationship and just noticing how I was able to deal with that in such a way that I was really proud of in terms of in the past, perhaps I would have maybe dwelled on, um, you know, the loss of, of the, the relationship. Um, yet I find myself being able to look at the positives and, and look forward. And, um, I think that, 
you know, afflictions of the heart are rough, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 33, I'm um, single now, uh, and, you know, I'm wanting to move into a, a longer term kind of uh, relationship. And I find myself, I'm living in my hometown, which is a tiny hometown in Australia, uh, where the, the dating pool isn't the biggest. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, and and so I'm able to be proud of the way that I'm not letting this this kind of like setback um, really get me down. And so I think it comes to that um, that coming back to that positive mindset, being able to look forward and and know that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here for a reason right now. Um, look at the positives, like look at what I'm actually grateful for as opposed to the loss. Um, you know, I'm grateful that I get to spend time with my family. I'm grateful that I get to be here in my town doing this while I don't have a family and kids because um, had I been here um, in, in Nara doing this, um, it might be a lot harder to do um, with a ball and chain, call it. So, you know, just trying to like always look for the positives, always look for the um, the upside um, is probably something that um, I'm, I'm most proud of right now. And I know that that comes from having this, um, you know, this, this physiology that is relatively stress-free. Yeah, that's a great mindset to have around that. And before we switch topics into some other, you know, you have some pretty cool creative projects that you're working on that we want to discuss. But before we jump into that, I did want to ask if there is, <clears throat> do the Vedic philosophies or teachings tell anything about how to handle or navigate lust and experiences of like having lust or anything around sex and sexuality? Is that something that's covered in there? And if so, what advice does it provide for people who experience those types of emotions and feelings. Yeah, love is a topic that always comes up. Um, it's it's a big one, and um, uh, my teacher Tom Knowles, he has some fantastic uh, podcasts that go deep into it, and he actually has a course on sexuality. There's one called Om Omnisexuality, which is kind of this philosophy um, that you know, sexuality is, can be, can be fluid and, and ever changing. Um, and in Vedic meditation, we say there, there is only one thing. There's, there's this one indivisible whole uh, consciousness that we actually experience uh, when we meditate. And then we come out and everything bifurcates and there's lots of, lots of different things we can experience. But we like to say that love is a self-referral phenomenon so that, when we start to experience love, what we start, and especially in other people or other things, is we start to experience ourselves in others. So, like when you first date someone, start dating someone, it's like, oh, like you love pizza, I love pizza. Oh, you love this song, I love this song, and we actually are finding all of the things in other people that all the things that we like in ourselves in other people, right? <laughs> and so we create unity. We're creating this like. Um, this unity bond of like all we, we connect on all of these things. And then what we're actually doing is we're like kind of creating this, um, that we're coming together. And then when you finally like love someone so much, like I love you so much, I want to put part of me inside of you. I want to put all my parts inside of you. <laughs> it's like, we're create we're actually literally coming together and creating this, this union, um, together. And so, um, uh, you know, we, we say that, uh, that union is important, that experience, we're experiencing ourselves in others. We're experiencing this, this coming together and, and it's a beautiful part of us um, finding ourself. 
Um, but we also say that, you know, in, in terms of, of lust is like, well, why are we coming together with people? Is it just to rub ourselves, rub our body on someone else and masturbate on someone else, like in a one night stand, right? It's like, are we really creating unity in that moment? Are we bringing together, are we merging our consciousnesses or are we just chasing a, a feeling, a kind of like a, to have a sexual release, um, to get some happy chemicals and, you know, what we're trying to cultivate here in Vedic meditation is this inner fulfillment, right? So there's two types of happiness. There's object referral happiness, which is everything out there makes me happy. I want my, the new car. I want the, the hot girlfriend. I want the, I want the money. I, you know, I want the new job. Those are all objects. They're all things that, as we know, we chase them, but they don't make us happy when we get them we want the next thing. It's this, this ever, 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 this ever repeating cycle. It's like, I want the next thing, the next thing. If I get that thing, I'll be happy or the fallacy I'll be happy when. And so the other type of uh, happiness is self-referral happiness. So that's happiness that comes from within. So in Vedic philosophy, what we say is like, let's build that self-referral happiness. Let's build that internal happiness. And then we don't become so reliant on, you know, a, a, a lover to make us happy because ultimately if that's what we're relying on at some point, we're going to be let down. And so I think like to come back to my example of the, the recent challenge that I've been facing becoming single, I think I have, it, I have that self-referral happiness. I have that, that internal, that, that inner fulfillment. And so losing that partner um, hasn't been such a blow. It hasn't been such a burden and now that I'm out there and dating, I'm not looking to go out and just have a one night stand to make myself feel better. You know, I'm not going to go and uh, jump on a dating app and, and go go pull a route down in Nara um, just to just to get my happiness level back because the fulfillment's already there. So, you know, what I'm looking for in my next partner is is unity. I'm looking for that coming together and that merging of consciousness so that we can build something special together. So. Um, does that kind of answer your question? I feel like it was a long-winded response. <laughs> I think we just experienced the proverbial mic drop, everyone. It was very well said. Yeah, I I loved that. I'm going to be listening to that multiple times. That was great advice. But I think it is time that we switch gears and start talking about all of the amazing creative projects that you're working on. But before we do that, I want to... I want you to explain, if you could, the concept of the super radiance effect or the coherence effect and how teaching meditation to 1% of the community can enhance overall happiness. Why is it 1% and how, how does that work? Yeah, so when I was doing my teacher training, uh, I was doing some of the prerequisite courses uh, to become a Vedic meditation teacher and I came across this uh, um, studies, these studies that had been done in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, conducted by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the TM organization. And they were specifically relating to a thing that was dubbed the Maharishi effect, um, but also the super radiance effect is another name for it. And it's this idea proposed by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that if you can get a small number of individuals to raise their level of consciousness, it can have a ripple effect through the collective consciousness of that geographic region. 
And so the TM organization did a number of studies to try and prove this. And not only did they say that you just needed a small number of people um, meditating, but even a, even a smaller number, in fact, the, the square root of 1% of people practicing very advanced techniques of meditation could have the same effect. And so they, there was one very famous study where uh, it was called the Washington Peace Project. And one summer, they took three and a half thousand advanced meditators to Washington for a month, uh, for, for the, sorry, for the summer. And they placed them in a hall, nothing special. They weren't out there fighting crime or doing anything special. They were literally just meditating, doing advanced meditation, um, a long meditation program on a daily basis. And during that summer, the crime rate in Washington dropped 16% compared to all other cities of similar sizes and crime rates um, actually went up that summer. And so this has been, there's about 55 published studies on this. And we have to stop for a moment and know that some of these studies weren't conducted with the highest scientific rigor. Um, there's obviously a, a, a self-selection bias. You know, there's there's people who are wanting this effect to happen. But if you look at the studies, and I've read all of them, it's pretty undeniable that there's there's some sort of effect happening. And if you think about it, like, you know, our bodies have trillions of cells, right? And each the health of each one of those cells um, contribute to the the overall health of the body. And we know if we get a cancerous cell, cancer can actually take hold and it can afflict and it can kill, a kill one single cancerous cell can kill an entire human body. And so when we talk about this um, level of consciousness, if we're raising the level of consciousness of just a few individuals, and we know, and, and I'm sure you guys know because you've, you've talked about it on your podcast, that there, there is an effect that humans are connected at, at, at a, on a consciousness level. We, we have the ability to affect the humans in, around us. And we know this if like, if someone comes home stressed into a household, there's a palpable effect in the household. Even the dog feels it when someone comes home stressed. If a kid had a bad day at school, they come home, there's this feeling within the household, right? And the more that we grow our physiology, the more we start to be able to become attuned to, to the, those energies and those feelings. And so, the basic uh, proposal by Maharishi was that it only takes a small number of individuals raising their level of consciousness to have a ripple effect throughout the whole community. And this, the, this is the Maharishi effect. So I was really inspired by this and I wasn't able to find any documentary films about it. No one has ever caught it on film. The, 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 the studies were done and they were, they were proven beyond reasonable doubt and they haven't really been created in modern times because in research, when things are proven beyond reasonable doubt, there's, there's actually no kind of reason to recreate the studies. Um, so I wanted to recreate the study um, and do it in my hometown and do it in my town of Nara. Um, it's not too dissimilar to a lot of American towns where um, there's high crime rates, there's, um, there's high violence and high drug use. And um, it's the affliction of regional areas, right? A lot of people move away to the cities. These regional towns are left um, with less support, less uh, access to mental health services. Um, and so you get these vacuums of places. And I've experienced this in Pennsylvania where my mom's family's from as well. Similar, similar thing where there's, there's the towns are, have been, the, the, the souls of the towns have been sucked out, right? And so... I wanted to come back to Nara and I wanted to see whether I could implement a social experiment and film the whole thing and see 
what happens if we can get 1% of the town meditating? And that's what I've been working on for the last 12 months. I've been slowly teaching people and encouraging people to come learn meditation. And I've probably taught maybe one third of 1%. So the town population is 30,000 and I've maybe taught a hundred people so far. Uh, and there's an effect. It's starting to, starting to happen. There's, there's change that's starting to occur from within, but we're filming the whole thing and we're going to see what happens. That is, that is awesome. By the way, congratulations on getting that project funded. I'm definitely going to be uh, helping out with that. Anyone who's listening, please help out because you're only helping the world become a better place with this amazing, amazing project. And, you know, I really want to watch this documentary when it comes out. So like, what are some of the topics that you're going to cover in the documentary? Like, how, how is it going to be made? And like, where can we view it once it's done? Is it going to be like a Netflix documentary? Like what's what's going on? Yeah, yo, Netflix executives, I know a lot of you listen to this show. Um, yeah, hit me up. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're still we're still looking for a distributor. We're still working on it. Um, but it's one of those things that we're rolling cameras and we don't know what's going to happen, right? And that's the beauty of documentary and that's the beauty of, you know, this, this uh, real-life storytelling is we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know whether it, it might not work, you know, or it might work and Nara becomes the most spiritual town in Australia or the world. Um, either way, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. And for me, it's a lot about the journey, not the destination. You know, we're not outcome orientated. We're kind of, it's just day by day. We're just seeing what, what's going to happen. And so my basic premise for the documentary is to follow individuals. So individual stories, um, finding unique characters within Nara. Uh, finding out what their life is like before they learn to meditate, teaching the meditation, coming back in six months, seeing if anything's changed and using those individuals, those individual characters to tell the story of the town as a whole and tell this and show how the, the town's changing. And I think like, you know, one of, the, one of my big goals is to not just show what happens in Nara, but inspire other towns to do the same. And one thing that I've realized since starting the documentary that I didn't expect was that this film is really about community building. This film is about how you can go into a regional place and build a community around a wellness intervention. And the more I'm realizing it, it doesn't have to be meditation. Someone could copy what I did and do it with yoga or do it with breath work or do it with stand up paddleboarding, whatever, you know, it's like, I'm kind of making a blueprint of how I built a community around meditation. And so for me, that means a lot because hopefully what this film will have is big ripple effect. It's people watching this and going, Hey, I want to do this in my town. They follow it. They, you know, they follow the steps that I did and they, they, they have a positive interaction and they have a, they build something positive. So I think there's a big potential upside. And um, so, Mike, you just mentioned, yeah, I, I had my project funded the last two weeks. I've been running a Kickstarter campaign, a crowdfunding campaign. It's actually closed and we got fully funded uh, for another couple blocks of filming. So we re raised around 50,000 US dollars from our meditation community, not just locally, but globally. Um, and the whole idea with that money is it's going to be put towards keeping the cameras rolling. So just continuing to tell the story, continuing to do high quality filmmaking. We're going for Netflix quality. We're going for the highest end um, possible so that, you know, we can 
um, we can share this globally. Uh, and so, yeah, if, if anybody is listening to this podcast that uh, is, is interested in distributing this with us, um, we're all ears, uh, but we're going to keep making the film no matter what. And uh, I'm sure it's going to reach a great audience when it does come out. So is this, it sounds like there's a, there's a team of people you're working with on this. Uh, how did you find the people to collaborate with and how are you finding the individuals to actually teach meditation to? What does that process look like? Yeah, two, two good questions. So when uh, I was living in New York City, uh, I started a production company with a couple other Australian guys. Um, so we actually, we've been making documentary films for about seven years now. Uh, so working with my team there, part of me leaving New York City was leaving that full-time business to focus on the film. So that's my uh, full-time job now is is doing the intervention. Uh, then we have a film crew. So uh, working with a female director based in Brooklyn named Julia Now. She's wonderful. She's got a degree in neuroscience. She's The first thing she did when she signed on for the film is she went out and learned meditation from my teacher, Tom Knowles. Um, she is yeah, fant a fantastic storyteller. Her direction to the cinematographer on the first day of the shoot was imagine every single frame you shoot is a still frame that you would hang in your living room. So we're going for this like cinematic tone, you know, where, where we want to, we want to tell a beautiful story of a regional, regional town. So that's a really cool take on it. That's, it's a beautiful, beautiful take. And then in terms of actually finding people, you're going to have to watch the film to, to see how I did it. Um, but it's, it's really, it's a, it's a grassroots campaign, right? And I learned so much from starting a business in New York City and building a community in New York City around our, our production company, Convicts. And I'm taking all of those big things that I learned and I'm doing them on a local level. So it's like, I'm, I literally went out and put up posters on all the notice boards around town. I go to schools and talk about this. I go into local businesses and it's a hustle. It's like, I'm emailing people on a daily basis. I'm doing Facebook ads, like it, like putting, boosting a post for $40 to invite people to my intro talks. It's, um, it's, it's like grassroots and I love it. I love it being able to take all of the things I learned from big business, from running a multi-million dollar company and doing it for like a, a, a tiny meditation intervention. It's really cool. So there's, this is a really cool project and it sounds like, um, it's exciting. I'm excited to see the results of it and definitely we'll watch it when it comes out. And it's my understanding as well that there are a couple other projects you're involved with. Another one is the Baseline Happiness Project. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Um, is it related at all to the Be Here Now or is this a completely separate initiative that you work on? Yeah, this is a, a separate initiative. And so when I did my teacher training, uh, there was only actually 10 of us who did the training in 2020. Two and uh, one of the guys was named Blaze D'Angelo, who was Mike's teacher. And um, Blaze was formerly the label boss at Owsler for five years, and uh, he, which, he was also helping to manage Skrillex, um, which is a very stressful and high uh, uh, in the music industry. It's it's a pretty incredible job, and um, he did a really amazing job there. And then another one of our colleagues was a guy named Matt Handley, who his DJ name is Yolanda Be Cool. Uh, but he also owns Sweated Out Records in Australia, which is a, a prominent record label here. And he's very well known and well respected in the music industry. So 
I've also had a background in in tour management. Um, I've got a, a music festival that's launching um, down here on, on the south coast of New South Wales called Clearly. Um, I've done tour management and I, I love music. And so what we realized and and blaze has been championing this for quite a while is that the music industry is disproportionately um, swayed when it comes to things like mental health um, i think there's there's a number of statistics but it's um, then people in the music industry are two-thirds more likely to have suicidal thoughts and they're more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression and so we took that passion for the music industry and we wanted to create an initiative there's so much research and literature and articles written about how bad the mental health and music industry is but like what is anyone doing to to help and so our idea was that we think that vedic meditation can help so the initiative is that we want to raise the baseline happiness uh, and the pun intended of um of of the of the music industry simply through teaching vedic meditation and the the initiative the baseline happiness project is our trojan horse it's our thing that can help to get us in to get us into record labels to get us into music schools uh where mike uh, met blaze uh it's it's our way of of getting you know putting a name um that isn't just vedic meditation or isn't Baron Hansen meditation. It's it's our name that we can put in front of people that people can get behind. So I've had some great success. I taught uh, Vedic meditation at Your Paradise, which is a, uh, a festival in Fiji uh, last December. Uh, I've uh, been asked to speak at another festival called Lost Paradise in Australia. So there's all these opportunities that are now coming up um, to to try and get music, get Vedic meditation into the music industry. That's amazing. And with all these amazing creative projects and all the students that you've taught meditation to, I'm curious if there is one story that stands out the most about someone who was really down in the dumps, really tried meditation. Maybe they struggled with it for a long time. They were initially pessimistic, but they found salvation through Vedic meditation. Um, it is, does anything come to mind? Yeah, there's a lot of statistics out there that that show that meditation works. But for me personally, one story that that was pretty amazing. So I have family in Pennsylvania. Uh, my mum's American, and so I went to Pennsylvania to teach a couple of my cousins to meditate. They asked me to to come over and run a course, and. I was running a course, uh, I was about to start a course and my auntie uh, who lived next door to my grandma, uh, she kind of like was curious. She was poking her head in and, and she's, she's always, you know, she's, she's never been into spiritual things. She's never been really into um, any of this stuff. And she was kind of like, oh, you know, can I join? And, and I, I, I didn't even think to really offer it to her because I didn't think she'd be into it. And, and she kind of like, she showed this worthy inquiry. And so I was like, yes, please. I would love to, I would love for you to join. And she's had um, her own health afflictions as well. Um, just some, some um, issues with her weight and different things. And, and she came and did the course and she absolutely loved it. It was like me. It was the thing that resonated. It was that thing that almost immediately felt the effects. And I challenged her and I challenge everybody who does my course to try the meditation for 30 days, 20 minutes twice a day for 30 days. And if they hate it, they can quit uh, after 30 days. But they say it takes 28 days to make a habit. So it's a nice way to kind of just to build this habit. 
And so she emailed me after 30 days and she had gone in for a regular health checkup to her, her doctor. And her doctor had said that her blood pressure was the lowest that had ever been in 10 years, in a decade. And she don't, she hadn't missed a day of meditation. And for me personally, it's like when it's your family and it's when it's, it's, there's an actual real measurable effect, you know, people can say they're happier. People can say that their mental health is better. We don't, it's very hard to measure, but when there's an effect like a decades, a decades worth of, of blood pressure undoing, it was, it's pretty amazing. And we've got to remember that like meditation isn't just, it, it probably wasn't all from the meditation. The meditation's creating better health outcomes. It's giving us more awareness. And in that awareness, we're able to then make better choices. And so it's probably, a, it's a cascade of effects. It's not just the meditation that reduced her blood pressure. It was the other things that came along with her making these healthy choices. So um, that's a really special one that I like to, to speak about. And it's made us a lot closer. She emails me all the time about her practice. And that was almost a year ago and she's still practicing. So, um, you know, when it's your family and, and when it's unexpected like that, when she just sauntered over and, and joined the course, it, it was, it was a really cool experience. Are there any other spiritual disciplines that you practice outside of Vedic meditation that you found to be very effective in moving the needle for your overall well-being? That's a good question. I would say that before coming to meditation, I wasn't a very spiritual person. Um, but like you guys and 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 um, going through some of your podcasts, I, I've tried lots of different things: uh, psychedelics, breath work. We did the I did the Wim Hof course, uh, fasting, long distance ultra marathon running, um, <laughs> uh, binge drinking, uh, all of the things, all the things. But to be honest. I, the one that the one that stuck for me has been has been the meditation and i find that that is the one that kind of it's a bit of a catch all for all of them um i i i don't really in, involve myself in many of those other practices anymore um i find that the meditation kind of gives me that it fills my cup um to the brim and, and so that i i think that you know, the other thing about this style of meditation, it's designed for householders. It's designed for people like us who have uh, families, who have jobs, who have, um, you know, we're not going off and being monks. We're, we're not going off and living in a cave in India. It's important that we're part of society. And I think with a lot of these spiritual practices, you can get too caught up, right? You get like, there's, there's so much you can do. You can be spending all day doing your practice. And so what I really like about Vedic is, it's pretty simple. It's 20 minutes twice a day. And so that's what I get. That's what fills my cup. And then I can spend the other 23 hours of the day out there working on films, working on baseline happiness project, working on music festivals. Um, I have, you know, this unbounded energy. So I don't try to get too caught up in, in, in layering on lots of practices. Just find I've found that one for me. That's, that's the one it's 40 minutes a day. And then the rest of my day is spent exporting that happiness. <laughs> I really like that. I think maybe I'm a, I'm addicted to spirituality. I do too many. <laughs> I have too many things that I do. It takes up my whole life. We we don't say we wouldn't say too many. We say doing it's doing research, right? And and you guys are younger than me, I think. <laughs> um, but um, you know, it's I, I did all the research. I, I did. I tried all of the things. And we don't say no. We say no. K N O W. And it's like I tried all those things, and and this is the one that that I'm you know happy with for now. And not to say it's going to be the one that's forever either. But I don't see it changing anytime soon. That's amazing. I, so 
Man, time has flown. You offer so many insights, and I I love hearing you talk. Uh, I, I have I have one more question before we wrap things up, and I just want to learn a little bit more about your daily routine. I know that you say that you obviously do twenty minutes twice a day, um, but like wh- when do you wake up? What like what do you eat? What like do do you exercise? Do you take cold showers? Do you journal? Like what what is your what is the daily life of Baron look like? Yeah, so when we when we graduated from teacher training, uh, we were giving given an advanced advanced technique, and the advanced technique was to teach, initiate, initiate, initiate. So for me, my goal and focus, and what is my number one priority is is teaching meditation, and I find that I'll put everything over that. So if my student wants to get initiated at 5 a.m. in the morning, I'll get up and initiate them at 5 in the morning. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally devoted to my students and, and their, their schedules. Um, so right now uh, I'm pretty busy with teaching. I'm teaching almost every day. I think there was a period there where I had maybe 45 days straight of teaching where I didn't have a, a day off uh, teaching. <laughs> um, and the cool thing about teaching meditation is you get to meditate. So yeah. sometimes I'll get to, um, as you know, you, you do you do the knowledge talk and then you do a meditation with your students. So um, I would say that my routine is is varied based on where the um, where the teaching is. Uh, and so, but if it was a typical day off, if I was not teaching, um, I would wake up. I would have a meditation in the morning. Um, I'd try and do uh, 200 push-ups in the morning every morning. <laughs> um, that's my that's my morning goal. I have normal temperature showers these days. Um, I have a protein shake. <laughs> um, I'm vegetarian, um, but I'm not too strict. I'm not too. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not too strict on what I what I eat. Uh, and that's about it. I, I go about my day. I teach. I always try and um, have a pretty fulfilling day, but try and read an hour before bed and then sleep seven to eight hours and do it all again. <laughs> this has been a great episode. And before we wrap things up with a couple last questions, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you today, Baron, for your devotion to Vedic meditation and not only trying to master it for yourself, but also making the effort to teach it to other people to have a greater impact on society, um, as well as even just within your local community in Naura. So I think it's um, definitely something that a lot of people would love to aspire to is how can we take the gifts and, and skills that we've learned and actually create an impact that helps to benefit others. So I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge you for that today. Thanks guys. And, and right back at you, you know, it's like what you're doing here with this podcast is you're doing your own research. And I think it's so cool. And you've got so many great episodes. I can't wait to dive into the back catalog and kind of catch up. Um, and you know, not only doing the research for yourself, but you're able to share this with other people. And I think that's when, when you do fill your cup, the next thing is to share, right? It's, it's to share with others. And, and, um, so I'm really inspired right back what you guys are doing. And I I really appreciate you guys having me on the, on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. So if people want to follow you or learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, I hang out on Instagram uh, and um, posting a lot of stuff on there. So just my personal Instagram is at Baron Hanson, B-A-R-R-O-N-H-A-N-S-O-N. Uh, the Be Here Nowra project, something I'm really passionate about, that's at Be Here Nowra. Uh, that, check that out. I really love the aesthetics of it. I'm, I'm really happy how I've curated the, the Instagram there. And then um, if you're in the music industry, uh, at Baseline Happiness is our Instagram handle there. Um, we've only just launched that. But um, if you're interested in having us come, either myself or Blaze or Matt Hanley, come to your music school, to your your workplace, um, to, to your, your company to talk about uh, Vedic meditation, we would love to. It's, you know, we're, we're super passionate about it. It doesn't even have to be music related. Um, I've been doing a lot of talks for corporate um, businesses. So coming in and coming in for their lunchtime wellness sessions and talking about stress. Um, and so if there's, if there's any way to connect or if you just want to know more, like, yeah, please hit me up Instagram. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm available and you can find me everywhere on the internet. Awesome. Awesome. Make sure to check out Baron's information. Everything will be included in the show notes. And my last question for you, Baron today if you had one piece of advice to give people who are seeking to heal and grow on their spiritual journey, what would it be? I think do the research, try everything. Uh, don't say no, just say yes. And I think that the more experiences that we have, be them good or bad, that there's, there's growth. And so, you know, was it buy the ticket, take the ride? say yes to as many things as possible and and the path the path will emerge and we just know that you know the life is like a river right and then the twists and turns are are kind of like the storylines and the the more twists and the more bends the more interesting it is but we know that all rivers lead to the ocean and we all get there in the end so enjoy the ride <laughs> beautiful thank you so much for being on with us today baron yep thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chasing Presence podcast. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word by telling your family and friends and by sharing it on social media. You can also show us your support by leaving a review. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with us, our contact information is in the show notes. Please send us a message as we'd love to hear from you and get your feedback. As always, thanks again for listening. Stay present and have a great day.